Before we get into this episode, just a heads up that it's not suitable for little ones or work. It's not always going to be the same. I can't say that people have to have sex a certain amount of times a week for the rest of their life. It's just not realistic. Like there will be times where you feel really shit and there will be times where you feel really good and more sexualized. And, you know, it has to also be reflective of of your sexual partner. So I think that we need to be aware that it is a roller coaster and it's really about being patient and being understanding and again being curious and non-judgmental from women's health australia this is uninterrupted a podcast where we chat to amazing humans about all aspects of health and well-being so that you can live a happier and healthier life i'm editor-in-chief lisa gebelagen it's fair to say that having a decent sex life is important for many of us So why is it that chatting about sex is still taboo? Well, on today's episode, everyone's favourite psychosexologist, Chantelle Otten, is here to normalise sex chat, break taboos and answer your coital conundrums. The author of a new book, The Sex Ed You Never Had, chats to our executive editor, Cara Byers, about what we can do to feel more informed and empowered when it comes to our sex lives. Chantelle also explores pleasure, relationships, period sex, common misconceptions about sex and how she became a sexologist in the first place. You're pretty famous, let's be honest. I feel like you're everywhere. But for people who might not know about you and your background, can you just tell us a bit about who you are, where you're from, where you live now? You know what? That's so funny because I don't even consider myself like famous. I guess it's like a... I don't know. Maybe I live in a little bubble because <laughs> I don't, I don't see all of that stuff, but I, I'm Chantelle. I'm a sexologist, which means that I am a sex expert. I help people with any sexual questions or concerns they have. Um, I run the largest, uh, sexology clinic in Australia. We have over, a, we have a team of like 23 at the moment and it's a multidisciplinary team. I'm the author of a book called The Sex Ed You Never Had. Um, and I live in Melbourne in Australia. Um, So what does a sexologist do? Yeah, that is such a great question. So I have a background in psychology. I've also trained in science in medicine and specialized in sexual medicine. And you know what, if you have a a concern, a question, a query on sexuality, on your own sexuality, or if you're not having a great time in the bedroom, or maybe you've never even got to the, the kind of sexual part of your life just yet. That's where I come in. So I, another way of putting it is I'm a sex detective. So anything that's going on, I'll figure out why it's, uh, I guess, distressing you or, or making you feel a certain way. And we work together as a team towards achieving your goals. Oh, good answer. Also, I like the sex detective. Maybe there's like a fictional book line in that for you. <laughs> And so we want to talk about your new book, The Sex Edge You Never Had. Can you tell us a bit about it and what inspired you to write it? So the book is basically a foundation. It's like a Bible on all the things that you should have learned in school around sexuality, but you you weren't taught or maybe you were only taught certain elements of it. You know, I know for myself, I went to a Catholic school. We really had like a 
very, we didn't really have sex ed. Like we learned about STIs and learned about like how to not get pregnant, but we didn't learn about pleasure. We didn't learn about our menstrual cycles, about anatomy, how to label ourselves. Um, We didn't learn about good sex, pleasure-based sex, consent, sexual debuts, you know, and I really feel like there was a lot missing from, from my sex education. And I noticed in my patients and in my followers on Instagram that people would message me with such basic questions. And, you know, I felt like there was a gap here, that there was something that we really needed to know around sexuality. And it was it was the basics. I'm not even telling you how to have like the most amazing time in the bedroom or like you know, how to like make your sex life super raunchy. I'm just telling you about what you should know to be able to feel competent and, you know, I guess empowered in the bedroom first and foremost. Yeah, the book is really comprehensive. Like I like the way you explain everything from anatomy and then you talk about contraception and periods and you even touch on kink and technique too. Um, So Mm. who do you think the book is for? Look, that's a really great question. I aimed at for adults, because I work with adults, my followers are adults. So it's really kind of like teenagers up. But I was talking to one of my friends, she's a gynecologist, and she was like, my son's 10. You know, I really want to think about like, when I can start talking about these things. And I thought, well, it's kind of for parents, you know, to sit with their kids who are age 10, like there are some aspects like certain elements of this book that I would feel very comfortable in my 10 year old knowing about such as anatomy you know such as menstrual cycle and even though attitudes have changed and we are more open now I'd say I mean I'm not an expert like you but I'd say that we are more open about talking about certain things especially periods etc even in comparison to when I was a kid so when do you think is the time that we when should we start learning about sex I think it's not so much sex that we need to start learning about early, but I think it's these basic kind of fundamentals that play into sex. So, for example, in Holland, you start learning about consent from age four onwards. You know, you start learning about, and I mean that in the way that, like, you, if you want a hug, you ask for a hug, and if someone says yes, then wonderful, and if someone says no, then you have to, you know, learn how to deal with, with, you know, rejection in a healthier manner than we are taught, because of course, rejection can end up um, for some people my age and above, like, they don't understand it. And they might have a, a visceral reaction to it or a dangerous reaction to rejection. You know, we I think we should start teaching these basics a lot earlier so that they become a little bit more normalized to us. And they're not so painful. We also, you know, can start talking about Uh, different like blended families you know having two moms or two dads or community raise you you know or having you know I I think even just sexual orientations and different genders and and you know assigned sex I think we can start learning about that a little bit earlier you know I think a lot of people still haven't learned about that that are kind of our age and above Um, and we can see that there's a real generational difference between those who feel kind of a bit more competent in discussing these issues and even a bit more supportive around these issues and those who don't. And I think that we can remove a lot of the problematic behaviors by learning about it earlier. In terms of sex, I mean, kids are having sex younger than when when we were growing up. And they're talk, you know, we, we are raised now in a highly sexualized environment, you know, social media, movies, TV shows, they're talking about sex, they're talking about drugs. It's, you know, very 
different to when I was growing up, which still, even then, I'm 30, it's not like it was that long ago, there was still a lot of sexuality out there. But, you know, I think it it is becoming a little bit different now. And I I was speaking to my friend Clementine Ford yesterday about this exact topic. When, When I was younger, we would watch shows like American Pie, where you would learn about masturbation from a very penis oriented point of Mm. view, from a very shameful point of view. Um, You know, it was very like it was laughed at it was made into a joke and now we can watch tv shows where we see you know a vulva owner having penetrative sex with a penis owner and she's rubbing herself you know she's rubbing her clitoris at the same time and we're starting to learn a lot more about pleasure but i think that um I think for, you know, the younger generations, they will have also like shows like Sex Education on Netflix to watch as well, which will be beneficial. Yeah. What do you think about Sex Education? That wasn't on my list of questions, but I was just really interested to see what you think about it as an expert. I loved it. I love the show. I think it's incredible. You know, I think even when I was training to be a sexologist, it would have been cool to watch this show. You know, talking about vaginismus, talking about different types of, you know, different looks of vulvas, talking about interabled relationships, you know, um, and and STIs and like the stigma around them. I, I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I love it too. I love Gillian Anderson so much. So, for the we'll go back to the uninitiated as well because I think when I say the uninitiated I don't think a lot of people have awareness of this stuff but they don't necessarily know what is meant by the words so let's talk about the sex positive movement what what do we mean by sex positive we mean people who feel comfortable discussing sex in a really healthy way that it's not going to make it not, it's not non-judgmental. It's free of shame. You know, it's focused on bringing healthy language and, uh, I guess, conversation around the topic of sexuality, intimacy, sensuality, eroticism. And then what have you noticed about attitudes to sex in Australia? Because um, you mentioned earlier about consent in, um, sorry, teaching consent in Holland. Having lived in a country like the Netherlands, which is pretty sex positive, and also experienced living in Australia as an Aussie. What are your observations about attitudes towards sex in Australia? Oh, it's different. (laughs) I think, you know, I do think that, like, we've just had years of not only government not prioritizing sex education but we also have like a very patriarchal society I think we've also got a lot of sexism in our society and a lack of equal rights here um there's definitely a lot of inequality over here um it's you know obviously it's getting better but as you can see with what's going on in the media even around you know wonderful people like Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and, and their movements as well we can just see how slow things are and there needs to be legislation overhaul you know in Australia I also think like we have a multicultural society and you know with different cultures coming here and creating such a beautiful you know community for all of us there is also differences in education between each culture and I think that we should expect to be getting the right sexual education from schools. And I do know that there are wonderful um, teachers out there who are doing a really excellent job of trying to bring that to schools and trying to help parents. And it's hard. You know, I also feel for them, it's not an easy job to be doing, especially if you're having to relearn all of this yourself. So um, I think that there's 
a huge difference uh, and I think that it's getting better. I can see especially over the past two years there's been a different change and I I also see in, in terms of the social kind of environment we have larger companies that are really wanting to get on board the sexual wellness train so that is helping the conversation a lot more too but I think we've got a long way to go. What are some of the most common misconceptions around sex that you come across? Most common misconceptions around sex I think it's just that sex is an obligation I think that that's one thing people feel like they need to be having sex to be normal whereas like sex is individualized sex is for you if you want to have good sex great if you want to have no sex also fine if you're not sure where to turn you know that's where we have to speak to experts like myself to really figure it out as a team but you know I I see so many people coming in and and they're having this sex it's really mediocre because they've seen you know movies where it's all about penetration and And, you know, I think that's another misconception I can probably um, write on the list here, but that orgasms for vulva owners, you're meant to have them through penetration. That's just not true. The clitoris is the most important sexual organ, apart from the brain, in vulva owners. And we're just not taught that pleasure is for us as vulva owners. I also think that misconceptions really lie around like virginity too. So like losing your virginity, your virginity is something to be taken, you know, that it it's, it's something that you're going to give to someone else, which is also just not true because you have to look at what sex is for you and you have to redefine the word sex. It's not about penetration and orgasm because you're ruling out a whole part of the LGBTQIA plus community and people with different abilities. Um, if you're looking at it in a penetrative way. Yeah, and in your book, I really, you know, it really resonated with you when you talked about um, vulva owners were kind of told very often that something needs to be fixed. Mm. Um, Yeah, there's something wrong with us. Yeah, (laughs) what is up with that? (laughs) Yeah, so that, what you're referring to is around the labia that we're talking about. So... You know, we we kind of go through our lives and we grow up and we learn a lot about penis owners and their pleasure and wanking off and jacking off and whatever, and it's all fun and games with them. But we don't get, like, we don't get shown any videos or pictures of vulvas, you know, and we don't get taught, we don't have any, like, real fancy words for masturbation for vulva owners. You know, there's flicking the bean, but I find that one a little bit weird. It's not my cup of tea. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, with also the regulations around media and images of vulvas, we just haven't seen the diversity in them, you know. And I was listening to Holly Madison's book the other day. She was one of Hugh Hefner's girlfriends and she was speaking about how his girlfriends all had to have inner labia minora. So, you know, labia minora that was small, that was petite, that was kind of childlike in some ways. He had a bit of a weird thing. Um, and I just thought, God, I wouldn't have been a good playboy bunny then because, <laughs> <laughs> because my labia minora is not like neat, you know, it, it's but it's mine. And I think that, you know, he and many other um I guess, misogynistic 
males put out this narrative that we should look a certain way down there. So, you know, in all the magazines and print and online, he would make sure that the labia minora was edited so it looked smaller, so it was tidier. And we know that that's an issue with media in Australia too. I think, you know, with the rise of uh, great online platforms like Labia Libraries and the Vulva Gallery, we can actually see the diversity in vulvas. Um, and we can see on OnlyFans that there are different, you know, vulvas out there too. But in pornography and, you know, you know kind of explicit materials, we, we didn't get to see that. And that's why um, surgeries like labiaplasty are like some of the highest, ri- it's the highest rising surgery worldwide. That's crazy that we've just kind of digested this standardized labia like it's I just need to absorb that for a moment (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely I mean if you think about it when did you learn that someone else's vulva looks different to your vulva look I didn't learn until I was in my early 20s yeah same exact same and I don't think I even looked at my own until I was late teens like I was out of my parental home and I also remember feeling really weird and awkward about it even though it's just me yeah. looking at myself. And, you know, I personally, I look back and I think I often think like, what is the center of that cringe? And there's just kind of this collective silence around it. Like we don't talk mm. about it um, and that's accepted. And it's not kind of, doesn't necessarily have to be rammed down your throat. Even it's just something that we've accepted for so long. But you write about yeah. these online galleries. They're a great resource. And I hope that kids are gr- going to grow up in an environment where they feel there's more choice for them. So just talking about diversity as well, I was really interested to read about, in in your book, about the lack of studies around sex for the LGBTQ community. Instantly, I assume, oh, it's because of the patriarchy that we don't have these studies. Is that true? Well, I think it's like a combination of things. I think it comes back to medicine and science and, you know, the way that we didn't really view equal you know, I, I guess diverse relationships and I, I guess the amount of inequality there was around like what was considered a healthy relationship, you know, there probably is a lack of studies because we wouldn't recognise the LGBTQI play, um, IA plus community for such a long time and especially in their medical degrees, you know, I, I think that there's just, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a hard one for me to put a finger on but I think because of like the length of time that we were ignoring that people had different sexual orientations and different gender identities has probably led to this buildup of, you know, cis heterosexual um, studies. So, you know, it, it is a little bit of a bummer because you kind of think, well, is this representative of, of the world that I live in? If I'm looking at these studies that aren't really representative of my community at all. Yeah, they don't seem to reflect kind of the world we live in. So is there anything the average person can do to agitate, to to make a change with that, do you think? I think we just have to be, um, I guess, a little bit more open when people are asking if we can participate in their studies. I think that we need to be more sex positive in our conversations. I think we have to demand equality. Um, and we have to call out any practices that are, you know, 
discrimination. So I, I really do think it's about creating a safer space for anyone um, within the LGBTQIA plus community, but also those, who, you know, who have disabilities, those who have sexual concerns. I think we just have to look at the fact that sexuality is complex. Like it's not black and white as we were taught that it should be. Yeah, it's not that one or the other, that, not that neatness. Nothing in life is neat, neat and tidy like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a colourful world out there and I think we need to be a little bit more open to that. If listeners to this were to come away with just one thing, what do you, what would you like that to be? I would love listeners to remain curious about sexuality. Don't assume that you know it all because you don't. I don't either. I think it is, you know, also really about being a bit more open with your conversations, being positive and really looking at sex from a non-judgmental point of view. So can I ask you a little bit about you and sex? What I wanted to ask you about is just because as an expert and a sex sexologist, like you just said, you don't have all the answers, but I guess a lot of people would kind of look to you as if you do um, and maybe not think about your own human experience. And I just wonder, is there anything, maybe not now because you've worked through it, but sexual that you cringe about no (laughs) there's nothing sexual I cringe about it's just that like there's so much more to know you know I, I I think it's it's not it's not that I think anything's weird because I actually think everything's wonderful and beautiful it's just that there will be some air like I'm 30 years old and yes I have a vast experience um but it doesn't mean that I will, like, I don't know what it's like to be 60 and having sex. I can only speak from a professional point of view. And I, you know, I'm in a monogamous relationship right now, so I can talk about my monogamous relationship. I can talk about open relationships because that's been in my past, but I, you know, there's a lot that I don't know about. And I think that when you come see an expert, like, if they're a great expert, they'll say, hey, that's not my area of expertise. So I would recommend that you go see this person instead. It's not often that I see a challenge that I can't step up to or, or that I, I don't understand. But I think it's more um, that I am professional and I stay in my lane. I'm not going to give half-assed therapy or answers or education on a topic I'm going to make sure that the person who is in front of me or who's asking me questions gets answers from the right expert. Ellie, we just talked about how people feel like they should be having more sex than they are. I think that's that's true of everybody, actually. I think people think people have more sex than they are all the time and you've kind of got to keep up. <laughs> like, should I be doing it two or three times a week or four times or every other day? And, um, you know, it's a question that comes up a lot. And I just like wonder, like, is that so? Is that common? Do you see that a lot with your patients? And do you feel that yourself ever, or have you that pressure to kind of keep up? Or um, I know that patients, of course, will say, you know, say that, but I will always have the answer that it's individualized for myself. Yeah, of course, there's been times where I'm like, yeah, it's not more that I should; it's more that I want to be having more sex. But there will also be times where I don't want to have much sex. I think it, again, it's it's not always going to be the same. I can't say that people have to have sex a certain amount of times a week for the rest of their life to be successful, because 
It's just not realistic. <laughs> like there will be times where you feel really shit and there will be times where you feel really good and more sexualized. And, you know, it has to also be reflective of, of your sex, sexual partner. So I think that we need to be aware that it is a roller coaster and it's really about being patient and being understanding and again being curious and non-judgmental and in that curiosity if you if you turn that curiosity to yourself how do you know for sure if it's not right for you or if you need to see an expert now that might sound like a really strange question to some people but other people might have feeling like oh I don't feel comfortable about this or I wish I was having more sex or I had more desire or sex drive. I think people only come to me when they're feeling a little bit distressed or if it's really taking up their brain capacity quite a bit. You know, when sex is good, you think about it like maybe 10, 20% of of the time. When when there's something wrong, you start to think about it a lot, a lot more, like 80, 90% of the time. And I think if it's taking up your time, your mental capacity, if you're starting to feel a little bit down or anxious about it, that's a really good time to come visit someone like myself. Cool. Thanks. So um, let's talk about period sex. Mm -hmm. This is a weird taboo subject as well, still, even to this day. (laughs) Um, Do you think our attitudes towards period sex are changing? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because... um, you know, menstrual wellness brands are really trying to push out a lot more education around the menstrual cycle and around, you know, sexuality and and um, your period. But I, I also think that, you know, I think people are just a little bit scared of blood, to be honest. So I think that there's, <laughs> you know, it, it's really interesting and people will go through times where they feel fine about it and they will go through times where they don't feel that great about it. But yeah, period sex is healthy. It's fine. If you're comfortable in doing it, wonderful. Just pop a sheet down or have sex in the shower or use your vibrator or keep your underwear on or your menstrual cup in or your tampon in and, and don't have penetration, have outer course. I think we have to look at so like all the things that we can do in the bedroom rather than all the things we can't do in the bedroom. Yeah, cool. Good answer. I guess a lot of people wouldn't think about that. Um Do you think there's any benefits to having sex at that particular moment in your cycle? Yeah, so you get a, you know, with with orgasm, with skin-on-skin contact, with pleasure, you get a release of endorphins. And these are feel-good endorphins, hormones that make you happy, connected, relaxed. They're also natural analgesics, so they reduce the amount of pain that you're experiencing. Um, And, you know, they're going to make you a little bit more go with the flow I guess (laughs) a little bit more into it so I I think that there are lots of benefits of having period sex um, and especially because your cramps are going to reduce too unless you've got conditions like endometriosis um, which can sometimes cause a bit more exacerbation or painful orgasms. Maybe people can put that in their little arsenal for reasons to actually give it a whirl (laughs) if they are feeling squeamish (laughs) about blood. Um, so birth control is actually quite a hot topic at the moment um, and a lot of people are looking and, and, and discussing different, you know, different contraceptive methods. It's a topic as well because of what's happening in Texas. What kind of an effect does birth control have on our sex drive? Um, it depends on the birth control. So it really depends on what your, what kind of, I guess, product you are taking. Some birth control methods 
will impact libido because the hormone interactions will reduce the amount of testosterone that you are able to use to fuel your sex drive. But in saying that, there are other forms of birth control that are fine and wonderful and won't impact on your libido. So it's really a good idea for, for I guess, any menstruators who are concerned about that to speak to their gynecologist and say, hey, it's really important for me to maintain a healthy level of sex drive. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, what about people who are going to see their GP? Is that the kind of advice a GP could hand out as well as a gynecologist? Yeah, if they're well-versed in it. Um, but if if they're not, then you can say, hey, I'd love a referral to a gynecologist. So I just want to ask you a few questions about to fit, fit in with our theme of women's health and about yourself. And what does wellness mean to you? Wellness to me means being um, having enough energy, having a good mindset to be able to take care of myself so I can be there for my friends and my family and my patients. It means not having burnout. It means having a smile on my dial. That's what wellness is about. And um, what do you do to look after yourself? Oh, I go for nights out with friends. I snuggle with my partner. I'm really getting into like cold dips at the moment. So a bit of a Wim Hof method. Um, I just walk my dog for like an hour a day. I smell the fresh air. I try different fashion outfits on and different ways of looking okay. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty basic with it. You know, I eat, I eat well. I'm not a huge exerciser. I'll I'll do an infrared sauna probably two or three times a week because I have one at my house. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty basic. It's I really just go with my gut feeling and my energy levels. Nice. Having an infrared sauna sounds pretty cool in the house. Yeah, it's amazing. It's I'm, I feel very lucky. Yeah, awesome. Um, so do you have any philosophies on life that maybe perhaps they you go to when you, you know, need them or maybe they just keep you going? Hmm. Do I have philosophies on life? I feel like I don't even know if it's a philosophy. I just know that if I don't do things that make me feel like the best version of myself, my most, you know, energetic, carefree, like happy versions of me, then I'm not really useful. (laughs) I'm not going to be of use. I'm going to be down. I'm going to be cranky. I'm going to want to go inward. So I need to do things that make me feel alive, you know, and that is having a laugh with friends and that is being, you know, a little bit messy and traveling and, you know, having a a good sense of imagination. And um, what's next for you? I'm working on my podcast at the moment, so that's going to be really fun. I really want to be able to bring up topics that are more accessible for people. Um, It's going to be visual and audio so that um, anyone can have access to it. Um, Of course, there will also be captions on there too. Um, And yeah, I'm really excited about that that next step for me. I think it takes a lot of organization. So that's the part that I'm kind of running into difficulties with. But for the rest of it, it will be really incredible to also have just wonderful guests on the show and and for people to hear from from others apart from myself yeah and what kind of guests will you have oh god I'm gonna have everyone it's not just experts it's like your everyday person you know someone that I meet that has a a good story or a good conversation for me oh awesome and um, obviously we've all just come out of lockdown and it's looking like the world's gonna open up what are you gonna do now the world's opening up 
Um, I really want to go see my friends and my family in Amsterdam um, and my partner and I are going to a wedding over in Europe next year, which will be really fun. What else will I do? I think I just need to <laughs> just go for some casual dinners <laughs> at friends' houses and make me happy or go to the pub. Like I'm really low key. Um, so I would love to see my niece. I haven't seen her in months now. So um, I'm going to see her next week for the first time in a while. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to also just have people over for dinner. And my last question is, so you're in, doing a lot of interviews and, and you talk a lot, but what's one question you never get asked that you wish you did get asked? Mm, I don't even know. Um, it's a hard one because I'm sure there are questions that I would love to be asked, but there's also questions that I guess about myself and like being more open, I guess things that are outside of my identity of, of a sexologist, but I also think I'm quite a private person too. So I need to kind of, yeah, I need to think about that one because I'm not sure if it's, would I love to get asked it or would I not like to yeah, get asked it? Yeah, because you don't want people to everyone to ask you that then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I can't actually give you an answer because I am also, I know I'm online and I know, you know, everyone sees where I'm at and, and blah, blah, blah. But I actually, only, you only see like 5% of my life online, you know, and you only see what I'm putting out. There's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes and I love that private side of it. Yeah, it's good to keep some back, keep some mystery and some privacy. Oh, I just don't have that much time as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I don't know. I'll think about that one. If it comes up, I'll let you know in the future. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Chantelle Ankara. While we're on the topic of sex, one of our writers bed-tested the theory that daily sex can strengthen a relationship. She also came across research that links sex with improving immunity and memory. So the mum of three committed to having sex every day for a week and the results surprised her. No spoiler alert here because you can read the full story plus more in the current issue of Women's Health Australia with Gabriella Brooks on the cover. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted by Cara Byers and produced by me, Lisa Gabilagin. Thank you and we'll see you next time.